Welcome to Bible Idiots. It is the teaching platform for Pastor Chris Danielson. That's me. Well, I've got a very special guest coming in to do the teaching today. He is an elder alongside of me at Fresh Encounter Church. His name is Kevin Peterson, and this message is so near and dear to my heart. Kevin just knocks it out of the park when talking about how large, what's the eminence of Jesus Christ, of our Heavenly Father, in your life. Hey, don't forget, freshroadmedia.com is listener-supported, and that is also the home of Bible Idiots. You can go to bibleidiots.com or freshroadmedia.com for all of the teachings. But right now, we're going to go to the main auditorium at Fresh Encounter Church in Harlan, Iowa, for guest speaker Kevin Peterson. I'm excited to be here. Um, It has been a while since I've uh, had the opportunity uh, to share uh, my name is Kevin Peterson. I'm on the leadership team. I've been very blessed to um, be involved in Fresh Encounter uh, for a long, long time, uh, even before we had a name. And uh, it has been one of the, the most fulfilling things in my life to be involved in uh, a startup something and then to see it grow and to see God uh, take us through many different um, growth uh, experiences and to see where he has brought us today. I'm so excited about what he is doing here um, for how he has us positioned for the future. Uh, The future maybe doesn't always look uh, the way we think it should, but uh, rest assured God is in control and he is, uh, it's not a surprise to him, okay? Whatever happens tomorrow is not a surprise to him. Um, This morning, we are going to look at a lot of different things in the Old Testament. It's really um, unusual for me to preach out of the Old Testament just because I normally gravitate to the New Testament. But uh, God's got us in the Old Testament this morning, and it's going to be, uh, I think, really good. Um, a few weeks ago, when uh, Chris knew that he was going to be gone this morning, he asked me if I would uh, preach. And I'm like, okay. I had no idea at the time, but I had just gotten done reading a book um, by Dr. Tony Evans called Returning God to Government. And don't get twitchy, we're not talking about that this morning, but there was a a line in there that got me thinking an awful lot. Even before Chris said uh, that he was going to be gone and he wanted me to speak or asked if I would, um, there was a line in there that got me thinking and I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And this is that line. It has to do, the title of this morning's message is To Hold God in High Esteem. And this is the line that he had in that book, is that we in a country are in decline because of our failure to hold God in high esteem. We as a country are in decline because of our failure to hold God in high esteem. And I thought about that a lot. We're going to unpack that a little bit this morning and kind of see where that takes us. But before we do, let's, let's bow with a word of prayer, please. Father, I just ask right now that your spirit would be in this room. Lord, we know that your word is going to accomplish its purpose this morning, but I ask that you would do it um, in your way, with your words. Father, I ask for your anointing on me in the next few minutes, that I would have good recall of the things that you have laid on my heart for the last six weeks. Father, that you would allow us to be receptive to not my words, but to the truth of your word, and that we would evaluate uh, 
all of these things, that we would ponder them, that we would think about them, and that we would seek your face in how this is going to motivate us going forward. Father, I ask for uh, your spirit to have free reign in this room, that you would teach us right now, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would keep us focused on, on the main thing, which is you. We lift up this time to you, Father, in your name we pray. Amen. So as I thought about this statement, there were some things that I had to kind of come to an understanding of. One of them we're going to look at in just a second was like the word esteem. What does that really mean? And he gave some examples um, in his text of the nation of Israel and what happened to them when they failed to hold God in high esteem, when they failed to regard God the way that they should. They'd gone through this, this failing to hold God in high esteem, quite a few times, actually. But I want to read to you a verse out of Second Chronicles chapter 15. And it says there, For many days Israel was without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. But in their distress they turned to the Lord God of Israel, and they sought him, and he let them find him. In those times there was no peace to him who went in or out or who came in for many disturbances afflicted the inhabitants of the land. So in their distress, okay, they had turned their back on God. They had, this was a period of time when they had asked for judges like all the rest of the countries had. And God said, okay, I'll give you judges. And that didn't go so well for them. And they turned their back on the teaching of the priests and that didn't go so well for them. So in their distress... They turned to the Lord God of Israel. They sought him. And then look what it says. And he let them find him. He let them find him. What was their distress? They weren't coming to God in the good times or what they thought were good times. These were not good times. And they were trying to seek him out. They'd turned their back on the true God, and and they had turned their back on his teachings. But God is gracious, and he let them find him, which gives us an idea that maybe he wouldn't always, for whatever reason, whatever lesson they needed to learn, whatever... uh, uh, crisis they needed to walk through, but in this case it says he let them find him. So as I thought about this statement that our country is in decline because of a failure to hold God in high esteem, I didn't really understand esteem very well. I mean, it's kind of one of those things, okay, I think I know what it is, but I needed to look it up. I needed to study it out. I needed to see uh, more about what it really means. The word esteem just in Webster's, means to regard with respect or affection, to set a value on, to rate highly, to have high regard. In the Hebrew word that we're going to look at here in a couple of verses, it means to lead before the mind, to suppose, to consider, a mental process involved in planning or conceiving. 
So to hold something in high esteem is an inside thing. It's something I do with my mind coming from my heart. To lead before the mind, to consider. In Job 23, 12, it says, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. This was a time in Job's life when he was trying to build a case uh, for why he should continue to follow God through all of his trials. And his friends were telling him to turn your back on God. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth. I have led them before my mind. I have thought about them and I have allowed them to influence me. I have allowed them to be what I stand on. He said, I have esteemed his words. And how has he put value on them? They're more important to me than food. Psalms 119, 128 says, Therefore I esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Therefore, I esteem, I think through all of your precepts and I know that they are right because I've thought it through. I've come to that conclusion and I have made a decision. I have held them in high esteem. What does it mean to regard? To observe, to gaze, to consider, to pay respect to. Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. He who thinks about the reproof, the discipline, is sensible. What does it mean to honor? A valuing of the highest degree, to give glory to. And we think about giving glory to God. And we think that's just a natural thing. We do it as a body. We do it as a church when we worship, when we study, when we pray. We give glory to God. Psalms 29, 1 and 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord God and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Joshua seven nineteen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, I beg you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me what you have done. Read that verse again. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you to give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me what you have done. As I started to study that verse, it's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. Because the glory that he is asking Achan to bring may surprise you, unless you're familiar with the story. It surprised me. So we want to review a little bit leading up to chapter 7 in Joshua. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 7. That's where we're going to spend a good share of our time. But if you remember the book of Joshua and what is going on there, Joshua is now the leader of the nation of Israel. Moses has died. Joshua is now the new leader. He is appointed by God. He is anointed by God. And God tells them that you should go out and all the land that you walk on I will give to you. And they are going to cross the Jordan River 
into the promised land. And that's where we're going to pick up what Joshua does next. He sends in spies to go to the city of Jericho. Very familiar story. They, they are in the city. They come to a, a, a woman's house named Rahab. She knows of the God of Israel. She has heard of all the, the powerful things he has done. She gives testimony to the fact that the people in Jericho are scared of this God of Israel. And she says, I am on your side. I will help you do whatever you need. She hides the spies. They make a promise to her that when the time comes, we will preserve you and your family because you helped us. The spies come back and give the report to Joshua. And they set out. And these are all the things that are now happening that are going to lead us up to what takes place in chapter 7. They, they set out to cross the Jordan River. It is in the harvest time, which is in the high water time of the year. And they set out to cross over. The, the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And when they dip their toes into the water, they start out on dry land. And they cross the Jordan River. There's two million people in the nation of Israel, and they're moving as one. They are nomadic people. They camp, they set up camp in the next place, and they live there for a period of time. Two million people. That's everybody in the state of Nebraska. That's a lot. It's not, I mean, you would think just the city of Harlan would be enough to move around. Two million people, and they all walk through on dry land. They get to the other side, and they set up camp. All the people who had heard of this in all the surrounding lands were frightened because they knew that the God of Israel was with them. And they knew that he was mightier than any of their gods. Once they crossed the river, we're not going to spend much time on it, but at the end of chapter 5, God commands them to make flint knives and recircumcise the entire nation. All right? Flint knives. That's rocks. And there were reasons for that that we're not going to go into. But thankfully, it says in verse 8, Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in camp until they were healed. All right? That's important. So they were there for a period of time, obedient to God. And now God gives them the next plan. Joshua is... Um, walking around outside of Jericho where they had camped, and he sees a man come up to him with a sword drawn. And he says, are you for us or are you against us? And he says, well, actually, I am a captain of the Lord of hosts, and I'm here to tell you what God wants you to do. And Joshua hit the ground. He's like, sorry. And this captain of the Lord of hosts said, and you should probably also take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. And he proceeded to tell Joshua what he was going to do to take the city of Jericho. Very familiar story. You're going to have the priests carry the ark, which was unusual. They were not normally the, the people that carried that. And you were going to circle the city. You, at once, 
every day for six days you're going to circle the city. On the seventh day you're going to circle it seven times. And at the end of the seventh time you're going to blow your horns and the walls will collapse. Now this is the, the city of Jericho, and from what I'd read, eight and a half acres. It's not that big. So they easily could encompass the city. And there was way more people outside the city than there was inside the city. And the people inside the city had been in siege for quite a while because they had cut off all of their supplies for a period of time. And they marched around, and they blew their horns. And before all of this happened, God gave them a warning. All the people will be killed. All of the, 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 the things in their city will be destroyed. All of the gold, silver, money, anything of value will be taken to the treasury of the Lord. It will be taken to um, the treasury of Israel. You do not get to keep anything for yourself. And the day came, and they blew the horns, and the walls collapsed, and the people were killed, and they took everything into the treasury of the Lord. And Joshua is now on to the next conquest, The next battle is a small town of Ai, I believe to the north, up in the hill country. Not many people there. And Joshua says, just send 3,000 people. Send them up to go into battle. That should be enough. And they send these men up there. 36 of Joshua's men get killed right off. And all the rest of them came back and told Joshua what had happened. Joshua couldn't understand what had happened. He didn't know what was going on. As we pick this up in verse 7, Joshua is talking to the Lord. uh, Chapter 7, verse 7. And it says there, Lord, why did you even bring this people over the Jordan to deliver us into the land of the Amorites to destroy us? The first time something doesn't go right for Joshua, what's he do? Who's at fault? God, this must be your fault. We're bad at that, aren't we? The first time something doesn't go the way we think it should in our lives, we're blaming God. Instead of maybe looking at me or looking at circumstances or choices that I make, we blame God. Why did you even bring us across the Jordan? You know, Moses did the same thing with the nation of Israel when they crossed the Red Sea. He said, why did you bring us over here to starve to death? There's no way there's enough food here to feed everybody. And God says, why are you blaming me? I will provide. He says to God, why did you bring us over here? Just so that your reputation would be destroyed, so that we would not be victorious. Why did you even bother to do these great things? Because it's really kind of your fault. And he points the finger at God. So in their conversation, in verse 10, and everything I'm reading today is is out of my New American Standard except these next two words. Go to the next slide, verse 10. So here's Joshua. He's been lamenting this loss. He's laying on the ground. He's been throwing dust on his head. He's been um, crying out to God, why did you even do this to us? And God comes to him. And he says, 
get up. Now, every other version that I read had something like, arise thee up from the ground, okay? Oh, get thee up, why are you in distress? Or, I really like this. God comes to him and says, get up. I will tell you what the problem is. Get up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? I'll tell you. Israel has sinned. There is sin in the land. Because God had told them, do not take anything for yourself. Do not keep anything for yourself. And God begins to have a conversation with Joshua about the sin that is in their land, that there is someone in their land that took that home with them. And I want to jump over to verse... Nineteen. God's plan was that you will bring everybody before the elders, tribe by tribe, family by family, household by household, and we will get to the bottom of this. And they did. And the whole nation knew something was up because everybody had to come before the elders. Everybody had to come before um, Joshua and his men, and they asked them, what was going on. In verse 19, the verse that we read before, they finally came to Achan, who was of the tribe of Judah, all the way down. It lists his ancestors. And Joshua says to Achan, then Joshua said, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord the God of Israel. Give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Joshua says, I'm begging you. Come clean. Tell me what you have done. This was the verse that I originally found that was to hold God in high esteem. And what is going on here? How is it he wanted Achan to give glory to God? Confess your sin. I don't, I don't think of it that way very often. I don't think of when we glorify God or give him glory that that's about me confessing my sin. But the more I thought about it, there's probably nothing more pleasing to God than when I get right before him. Let's go on in verse 20, and let's read Achan's account of what happened. And he's going to come clean, and he does. And he says, so Achan answered Joshua, and he said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, I coveted them, and I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth in my tent. What was the progression there? 
Achan knew he was not supposed to do this. But he says, I saw. I saw these shiny things, and I wanted them. So first, he coveted, I saw them. Then I coveted them, I wanted them for myself. Then he said, I took them. And you would think that as great as sin is, that now he would be able to enjoy his spoils, right? He said, then I concealed them. Now this was not an insignificant haul for him. What he took was valued at the amount of of money that he might make in a lifetime. If you work for 30 years and make 50,000 a year, that's a million and a half. Just an average. A lot of stuff. And And this mantle was a beautiful robe with gold threads in it woven into silk. And the silver and the gold were just huge quantities. And he saw them and he thought, this is so great, I've got to have it. So he took them, he acted upon that. And then it was so great. It says he hid them in the earth. It makes me think he went back to his tent, pulled up the rug in the floor and buried them in the ground. That's how great this sin was. He had to hide it. What a lie we believe, you know? The devil has got us really hook, line, and sinker when he gets us to do the wrong thing and then we can't even enjoy it. Eve did the same thing. She saw the apple. She saw that the tree was good for fruit and pleasant to the eyes, that it desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit. David did the same thing. He's standing on his balcony, he sees a hot chick over the way, taking a bath on top of her house, and he saw, and he coveted, and he took. Sin begins with an innocent sight, just looking. It degenerates into lust and desire. I want that. And it falls for there, from there into participation, action. And the fourth step is that it always involves others. We think that it doesn't. We hide it in the carpet in our tent, under, in the ground, but it always involves others. There is no such thing as private sin. All sin affects others. Every sin affects society. We're all part of society, and every sin affects us. How often do I ever think of confession of sin as bringing glory to God? That it's actually honoring to him. Think about that this morning. How honoring it would be to God if we as a a nation, like that'll ever happen, would repent of our sin. But what about we as a body? We as an individual? We're embarrassed about our sin. We're reluctant to speak about it. We don't want to admit it. 
But did God know about Achan's sin? I mean, one, one of the amazing things is that, you know, we look at this sometimes, and, and here's Joshua, and God says to him, get up. Well, and we think, you know, if God would just talk to me, I would do a lot better. So, what did he say here in verse 20? I just went over some of your heads. Come on. What if God said to me, get up? Nothing could be more pleasing than to God than to him to restore my fellowship. So after Achan confesses his sin, Joshua sends in his guys. They get the booty out of the tent. And they lead Achan up into the valley. Nothing good happens in the valley. It's not looking good for Achan. And Joshua knew this. Because back in, in uh, verse 15, before they, they decided to bring everybody in front of the leaders, God had told Joshua, it shall be that the one who has taken the things under the ban, he shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. They take Achan and his family out into the valley these were people that they knew. These were their neighbors. It was somebody's aunt and uncle. It was somebody's tribe guy across the way. I mean, they knew this family. And they led them out into the valley with the entire nation of Israel with them. And what does it say in verse 25? Joshua said, why have you troubled us? Talking to, to Achan. The Lord will trouble you on this day. And all of Israel stoned them with stones. And they burned them with fire. And after they had stoned them with stones, they raised over the, excuse me, they burned them with fire and then stoned them again. They had raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place is called the Valley of Anchor to this day. How do you think this affected them? I bet you they took it seriously. If you haven't thanked God for the new covenant lately, now would be a good time. Okay? But has God changed? Does he look at sin the same today as he did in the day of anger? Okay. He hates it. He has sent us a, a, a Savior. He has sent us a Messiah so that you don't have to lead me out to the valley this afternoon. That's what that does for me. You can look at that however you want, but that's what that does for me. Because I deserve the same thing as Achan did. God still looks at our sin the same way. And it's easy for us to say, well, what about the new covenant? Yeah, be thankful for that. 
But that doesn't mean God is not just as offended by my sin as he was then. And just because he doesn't take me out and you watch me get stoned this afternoon, that would be a somber thing. I'll bet you would act differently for a week or so, right? God takes that seriously. As I think about all these things, as I think about how, how it affects not just our country, but bring it, let's bring it home here. In our country, and it's easy to say, why like that? Because then it doesn't have as much stick to for me. But we'll start there. As our country, we, we need revival. Everybody agrees with that. As a nation, we have truly turned away from God. Okay? But revival will not come from our nation's capital. It won't come from our state capital. It won't come from the courthouse. It will never start in a group of anything. What does the word revive mean? It means to come back to life, to bring vigor, to awaken, to resuscitate, to recover from neglect, to live again, to regain life. What might that mean for you to revive something? And you might think, man, you're kind of coming at me sort of hard today. Yeah, we'll study this for the last six weeks. How do you think I feel? What would it mean to bring back to life? What would it mean? What is in your life you need to revive to get it back, to resuscitate it? That means like it's barely breathing. There's all kinds of things for me. My prayer life stinks. I used to pray every day from a journal and a list. I I can give you two things. You want want to get your prayer life going? Write it down. Put a date on it. Pray from a list. Pray out loud. All right? Whatever that means. There were other things I just had to reevaluate and say I shouldn't be doing that because I need revival. Does the country? Okay, yeah, it does. But how about you? Revival will only start with me, and it will only start with you. It will only start with the confession of my sin and repentance and humility. To put God back where, he didn't move, but where he already is. To esteem him where he already is. To regard him in the position that he already has. To take sin in my life as seriously as he does. He took it so seriously. He sent his son. It cost him something. We're going to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians. So where do we go from here? What do we do with this? How do I equate that to my life? How does that change what I'm going to do? What is the newness that is in me? 
For the love of, starting in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. What is that newness? The thing that's new in the life of the believer is the fact that he can now say no to sin. That he can now refuse to be obedient to the temptations that are staring him right in the face. You have a choice. You do not need to do that. What does he tell us in Romans chapter 6? Starting in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present them to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Who's your master? Who's my master? Who do I obey? That, that's what the rest of that thing goes on to say, is that you're going you're gonna to be a slave to the one that you obey, whether sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Who's your master? I want to look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. And there Paul says, I beg you, I implore you as a prisoner of the Lord to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That you would live your life in a way that brings value to what God has set out before you. That you would walk in a manner worthy. That there would be value to your life, the way you're living it, to the calling that God has put on you. I want to end this morning going back to 2 Chronicles 15. And I'm just going to read verse, verse 4. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel. And they sought him. And he let them find him. I don't know where you're at. And I'm not here judging anybody. This was 98% for me this morning. But in their distress, they sought him. And he let them find him. And I don't know where you're at this morning. But I know nothing would bring glory to God more than for you to get right with him today. And I'm talking to a room full of probably mostly believers.
There are probably some here that don't know Christ as your Savior, and if you don't know him, that's the first step. But the majority of you know him. The majority of you, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your daily walk is. You surely would not have known my prayer life was in the tank. It is. I don't know where your, where your thing is. But if you seek him, he will let you, <laughs> let you find him.